This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Listeners, you can now support the continued growth of the show. How? Simply by hitting that subscribe button. If you enjoy the content we are producing here and our show is part of your podcast routine, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We so appreciate it. On today's episode is Chad Price. He is the co-founder of Kettlebell Kings and a former college football scholarship athlete from Rice University. Roughly 10 years after starting the business back in 2012, he was able to orchestrate a multi-million dollar exit in 2021. Today, Kettlebell Kings still remains a thriving international company. In this one, we dive into Chad's background as an athlete and the connective tissue between sports and entrepreneurship, how Kettlebell Kings grew from an online business to a massive community of fitness enthusiasts, what characteristics make for a good leader, and of course, his new book, preparing for battle. We dive into that as well. So with that intro out of the way, let's get right to this show. Here is Chad Price. Why don't we jump in? I mean, when we talk about the book, preparing for battle, just published in August, tell me a little bit about the book and how it connects to your foundation as an entrepreneur. I think every entrepreneur kind of goes through a different journey and kind of what brings them to the point they start their own business and the type of businesses they start. And so for me, I really wanted to kind of tell that part of my story and then tie that into my business success and especially my most notable company, Kettlebell Kings, that I kind of completed a 10-year journey in starting that company from scratch and then selling that company and kind of moving on to the next entrepreneurship initiatives that I have. Yeah, we'll get to that story and that exit. Absolutely. But before we do that, so some key topics and key takeaways from the book First one being how to use one's personal story as a foundation for success. So for you, what is your personal story and how do you connect that to your success? For me, I think a lot of it's in my background in sports and athletics. I think when you have grown up trying to achieve something difficult, you know, for me, that was playing competitive football, playing pretty much every sport under the sun growing up. It really allows you to have these kind of experiences and call them micro battles that you get to go through. And you win, lose, and you have to try again. And I think when it comes to entrepreneurship, I can tie a lot of those experiences together and it helps me kind of look at the ups and downs of starting your own business and trying to overcome all of the obstacles as just a part of the journey, just no different than uh, if you were trying to win a football season. Even in high school, talk about my first experience of branding. I didn't realize I was getting a class in branding, but we got a new coach when I was a junior in high school and he rebranded the entire facility. He rebranded the the team, the uh, the staff, everything was a completely new culture. And that culture went on to win state championships and kind of set a standard or an era that people still kind of aspire to to this day. And seeing that kind of stuff really taught me like, okay, this is, it's bigger than just what you say or what you do. It's, you know, it's a strategic thought process to put this whole thing together and to get other people motivated to achieve a, a mission that you can't achieve alone. There's a big connective tissue, I think, between the founder ecosystem and competitive sports. Lots of founders have a background in competitive sports in general. For you, what are the important character traits that you see as critical for not only performing at a high level as an athlete, but also as an entrepreneur? I think in the athletic world, being competitive doesn't have a negative connotation. I think some people 
in the civilian world, if you want to call it that, think that being competitive is somewhat negative. But I think being competitive means that it's constantly improving. And every time you go out and you try your hardest and you're trying to be the best at what you do on a regular basis. And that type of mindset to me is what a company should be. Like if a company's not trying to be the best, whatever, you know, plumbing repair company or fitness company, then I think you're not supposed to exist and you're doing the entire culture a dishonest kind of effort and not, not even trying to be good at what you're supposed to be getting paid for. So every company that I've ever been a part of started, we've always kind of embraced that culture of like, let's try to be the best. Like, let's come here and actually work on getting better every day. And everyone can enjoy the process of just being good at what we do versus just kind of going through the motions. Did you feel like you were successful in building that kind of a culture? For sure. And it, it wasn't easy, you know, and it, it, to me, that was one of the harder parts. Uh, you know, I talk about in the book, even I started a, a nail salon with my girlfriend at the exact same time I started Kettlebell Kings. And my mindset is the same across the board. So even like at the nail salon, I'm like, hey, I want you girls to be competitive. We need to be doing, you know, the best nails in Austin. We're the number one nail salon that exists here. Every aspect of kind of how I try to inspire or push people is always through some type of competitive structure. And I think designing that in a business is a lot harder to do. But when you come from sports, it's almost like you can think of different drills to get players into a situation where they'll actually get better. And I try to do that for the employees and the leadership as well. And it, it seemed to have worked out in my companies. When you launched Kettlebell Kings, what was the competitive landscape at the time? This goes back to 2012. I assume, you know, lots of folks selling fitness equipment, other related products. What made you guys different and how did you look at the competition at the time? I think that's a perfect example of us kind of catching the wave of kettlebells becoming more popular. At that time, there were no real kettlebell companies. So there were companies that offered kettlebells, but it was a side product or, you know, it was a, an ancillary product that they just offered. And most of them were not high quality. If you looked at the reviews, you talked to the community, they didn't think too fondly of those types of kettlebells. When we started Kettlebell Kings, I personally was on my own journey and so were my business partners and trying to find my own kind of health and wellness routine after college and competitive sports. So I didn't really like going to the gym, 24 hour fitness and goals gym felt like a social scene more to me than anything else. And so I was really looking for like, how, how do I do like home fitness, but not have to go out and spend, you know, $3,000 on every piece of equipment that I was used to working out with. And I kind of fell in love with kettlebells somewhat. So it was kind of a, an overlapping of, you know, my personal experience and journey with there's no kind of lifestyle or kettlebell brand that exists in that space in 2012, coupled with the fact that the communities, the online communities, there was no place in which everything kettlebell existed in one space. And that's what we wanted to create. We wanted to be, you know, a superstore of kettlebells, as well as being kind of the ESPN of the kettlebell world, where every single important piece of information from around the globe was all in one place around that work kettlebell. So you do create that superstore, but you also introduce training programs. You introduce online courses, various in-person workshops. Can you talk a little bit about the business model? How were consumers accessing Kettlebell Kings on the other side of that product purchase? We knew it going in that we wanted to tie all these communities together. We learned pretty quickly that there were organizations of Kettlebell enthusiasts around the country. There were actual competitions that we could participate in, sponsor, and be a part of kind of supporting that side of the Kettlebell world. 
And we, we wanted to tie all that together virtually. So we wanted to create some type of space where everyone was looking and absorbing and contributing to their information of our platform. And that's kind of what we designed from the beginning. So once we had that going on its own, the product kind of came after that. So when we originally opened the company, we, we thought we were going to be like a superstore in which we sold every brand of kettlebells that existed globally. So we would create, you know, wholesale relationships or drop shipper relationships. And then we would just have all of these kettlebells in, in store. And once we started the community, we realized like, hey, that's not the best way to do this. And we actually are going to have to go out and create our own. And taking feedback from the community allowed us to do that. And the, the fact that we had the community allowed us to go out and create something that everybody wanted. You know, this idea of community seems to be a big theme today. This is, you know, your thesis is almost feels like it was early you know, I tell everybody I was in college when Facebook came out. So that, you know, tells how old I am. But I remember having the first Facebook page when it first became available in my college and you could sign up. I was like, yes, gonna go on doing it. And I was like, man, I'm gonna make so much money building communities with this because this never really existed in human history in which you could have people from all around the world all absorb information that's orchestrated from the same entity and that information be actually helpful and something that brings people together. So I saw it as an extremely positive thing. And I've kind of been building those types of communities ever since. And every single brand, I think, has the ability to find those fans or that community that really supports them and would stick with them and buy whatever product they put out. I think it's just a matter of trying to get that started and sustaining that momentum. What do you think sustains a community long term, at least for me and what we've seen? There is value creation that happens between the company and the end user. That's sort of one direction. The other direction is the value creation that happens between the customers, members, subscribers themselves, right? And if you've got a customer base that has this sort of common goal or common passion, to me, that is the secret sauce to building a really sticky community. For sure. I think, you know, having that that common goal or that common mission is, I think that also comes from sports. You know, I tell everybody I had tons of teammates over the years and I didn't like them all. Some of them might be Democrats, some of them might be Republicans, some of them might be one religion, some might be another. When you have a common goal, it doesn't matter. And you can set all of that stuff aside and really appreciate the effort and the energy around this common goal. And so with Kettlebell Kings, obviously the focus is kettlebells and that's how we would look at it. Is we're here for that centerpiece of let's make our lives better using this tool. And anyone that doesn't support that is not part of the community. And that that makes the boundary really clear and positive. And it's almost impossible to come to, you know, let's say a Kettlebell Kings event and not have a good time because that's the purpose of the event. The The entire thing is surrounded about finding the best kettlebell and using that in the best way to, to empower your life. It's interesting because I think at this point, I was checking the other day, the Instagram community for Kettlebell Kings is north of 400,000 people. It's incredible. I mean, this is obviously a niche area of fitness. What is it about kettlebells themselves, practically speaking, that make that piece of equipment and the training that comes with it so much different than going to a gym and working out with dumbbells? It's the way you use it and, you know, it's how it transfers to, let's say, functional fitness. Most people are not trying to become bodybuilders and that's the type of workouts that they're actually getting from people. Once you start a routine with kettlebells, you will immediately be able to carry more groceries. You'll be, be immediately be able to pick things up more easily. You'll notice kind of the functionality of you moving through your environment become a lot easier 
And it's definitely not the same velocity with dumbbells or with static movements. And I think that's the biggest thing that people find is this actually translates to, to helping me be more functional in my daily life. Let's go back to 2012, 2013. You mentioned Facebook already. I mean, this was kind of the golden era in terms of Facebook paid traffic, let's say. Cheap CPCs and, and CPM rates on Facebook. It seemed to me that any e-commerce brand that was launching and scaling at the time was doing so off of Facebook ads. Since then, we've seen CPCs and CPMs just steadily increase year over year. Was there a point as you scaled up Kettlebell Kings that paid media on Facebook just got too expensive? I mean, absolutely. I think just like everyone else, you know, the the good old days of uh, the cheap clicks is is over for Facebook. But yeah, I think for us, it was a little not as hard as most companies because we didn't rely on Facebook for sales. Facebook was just another lead generator for us. So the biggest thing for us and the biggest thing we realized early on is people don't just, you know, you're not just walking down the street window shopping and a leave with a kettlebell. That's not a common occurrence. There are other products online that you may purchase in that way. If they hit you with three, four advertisements, you may go ahead and just purchase that. But a kettlebell is something that people, uh, it's a little intimidating to some people. You know, surveys say people think it's dangerous. People think they're going to hurt themselves. So we really try to overcome all of those before we even hit you with a sale. So 90% of our ad budget would be to get leads. Let's talk about the impact of COVID. Everything changes at one point. You know, we see lockdowns and domestic quarantine announcements happening in different markets. At the same time, we have this massive surge in the interest of home fitness products as people pivot from the gym into their home. What happened then to Kettlebell Kings? What was going on on the demand side? The demand side, obviously, for home fitness overall increased. Even now, we're still seeing a trend up where it's more people into home fitness and at least having home fitness as an option or a, a supplemental part of their, their workout routine. Did you have any inventory challenges in terms of keeping up with demand? For sure. Once the quarantine was announced within the 20 minutes, we were completely sold out of everything in, in the inventory. But then we had additional problems as well. So now you have no, no inventory, nothing to sell. So you know we had to double down on uh, digital products and creating things that people could consume virtually and digitally. So that really up ramped up our production of, let's say, the content side of the company. And then obviously the shipping challenges were tremendous. You know, you had full containers go from 4,000 a container to 20,000 a container overnight. And that kind of stuff for a small business like us is not something that we can take lightly. But at the same time, we don't want to be a price gouger or, you know, someone who's taking advantage of a situation. So we would keep prices relative to the same, if not the same, and just try to provide more value or try to come up with creative ways to to deal with the kind of overwhelming demand during that time period. When did you sell the business? We sold the business in November of 2021. Let's say almost a decade in, right? You're, you're growing the business. You sell November in 21. When did acquisition become an area of interest for you? I wish we had the foresight to, you know, plan everything out and go through some extremely strategic business plan that we had built out. I think we knew we wanted to get it to a certain level and then kind of evaluate it from there. So, you know, getting it to a million dollars was one of the marks that, you know, we said, when we get it here, we'll talk about what the plan is and what the goal is. But I think once you start seeing the brand in the community and you realize that you're limited by the, let's say your financial 
capabilities or just the cash flow. You know, if you're you're only 30% margins, you can't grow but 30% a year and that's not paying yourself. So that's what we did for four or five years before it became something where we're saying, hey, if we really want this thing to blow up, it has to be more strategic. We're going to have to invest in larger infrastructure, obviously quite a bit more inventory and expanding into other countries. And those conversations and inventory financing and those types of things led to people making offers and ultimately, um, you know, us deciding that being acquired or partnering and uh, being absorbed by a larger entity may be what's best for the brand and us for overall. Looking back, I mean, is there anything as a founder operator of this business that you would have done differently during your journey? You're not learning if you can't think of things that you would have done differently. But, you know, I think if I, if I had to kind of pick a few, I think early on, really doubling down on the company, finding investments earlier, there was a lot of us taking pride in the fact that we didn't have investments early on. And, you know, it's us against the world. And I, I think part of that galvanizes you as a team, but it also can hinder the growth. And I think we did that in years, let's say three through five. But overcoming that is kind of what maybe got us to the next point. So, you know, you can't really look back and dwell on the things that you could have done better. But I think noticing that you have potential and maybe next time at this point is where you should pull the trigger versus kind of waiting till it's a no brainer is is something that we should have done sooner. When you say we, how many other partners did you have? So I started the company with two partners. One was another teammate of mine from college that I played football with at Rice. And then the other was a friend of a teammate of mine from Rice. And so the three of us were the decision-making council. Two of us worked on it full-time and our third partner, he still had a full-time job, but he did basically all of the bookkeeping and financing for it. Lots of different opinions around friends going into business together. In your experience, was it a good decision? I think it's a good decision. Uh, you know, I think it's people say there's kind of no right or wrong. It's just trade-offs, right? And I think there's trade-offs to having friends be your business partners and there's trade-offs to not having friends be your business partners. So I think you have to navigate that. And that's kind of what I talk about in the book as well, is I don't think everyone is as good as maybe I am at navigating that type of thing. My entire life, I've been navigating my friends being on teams together and putting their differences aside and going after the common goal. So that's something I feel comfortable in going into. Whereas if you haven't come from a background where you've had to, you know, be the team captain and motivate everybody on the sucky days, and maybe that's not, you know, your area of expertise, it might not be as good for you to go into business with friends and family. And so I, I think you just have to take that into consideration. What are some questions that a founder should ask themselves if they're thinking about going into a partnership with a good friend or a teammate? And how do you vet these potential partners ahead of time? Are there certain conversations that you need to have? Are there certain core values that you need alignment on? I mean, absolutely. I think you have to have kind of the most honest conversations you've ever had with anyone. You know, I think it it takes a level of vulnerability from yourself to be able to put yourself out there first, especially if you know, I, I've always seen myself as a, a leader personality. So if someone has to do it and someone has to take the heat, that'll be me. I, I, you know, I'll volunteer because I want things to, to progress and move forward. But at the same time, I've been on teams where, I, you know, the, I'm not the quarterback. So I'm following the quarterback's lead and having the ability to be self-aware enough to kind of put everything on the table and be willing to commit to that whatever, you know, for us, it was like, hey, we're committed to starting a company. It's going to be an e-commerce brand. We didn't even know it's going to be Kettlebell Kings, but it was a concept and a, a council and a, it was a, a time commitment as well. Without having those kind of direct conversations at first, no one can really be held accountable. 
And what I see happen a lot of times with business partners is people have different perspectives of what was expected of them going in. They don't have those honest conversations in the beginning. They don't know, you know, what is a, a revenue amount monthly that is considered good for me. So, you know, some someone at $5,000 a month is complaining and another person is saying we're succeeding at $5,000 a month. And I think those are kind of the most important conversations to have early on. You know, personal responsibility, accountability, these are all, you know, to me, very obvious character traits of a good leader. In your book, you talk about transforming oneself into a true leader. In a sense, you're alluding to the fact that you don't necessarily have to be born as a leader. You could learn this stuff. Could you just highlight some important character traits beyond what I've just mentioned that are important as a leader for those that are looking to launch a business? I mean, I think there's a you know quite a quite a few things. I, you know, I list a, a lot of it in the book, but the biggest thing, especially if you if you're not a outgoing personality type, I think it's hard to kind of take that leadership. I would consider myself an outgoing personality type. I consider myself an introvert somewhat, but I think once you put yourself in that situation over and over and over, and you keep rising to the occasion and putting yourself into more challenging situations it almost becomes inevitability because at the end of the day, you just want to get through the task. You want to get through whatever obstacle it is. And you realize that your confidence comes from your experience and how many tasks you've already gotten through and how many battles you've already won. And that's what I tr try to be as a leader. It's not that I'm never going to fail. It's that I know I might fail and I'm still going to do it anyway. And when I fail, you guys can watch me fail. I'll get up and do it again. And I think a leader is someone who is confident and, and, you know, secure enough to keep doing that until he dies almost. You talk about your experience now as a speaker. I mean, this is new territory for you. You just describe yourself as somewhat introverted. How was that leap into speaking? It is the journey I've been through, right? I think it's the experiences I've gone through, the things that I'm talking about. If you ask me to get up there and talk about something that I have no experience in, I probably would go back into being very un uncomfortable. But when it's talking about the journey that I've been through and, you know, for me, it's like trying to help and get other people to understand that they don't have to make all the mistakes that I've made to learn the lessons that I've learned. When you're a business owner, I think you need to think about those things now. I think you need to try to become wise now. I don't think you need to wait until you become this old man before you learn from all your mistakes. So on the other side of Kettlebell Kings, you've got Life Goes Green. This is a company that's striving to help customers fall in love with plant-based products. What is this company all about and where's the passion for this company come from? Yeah. So when I was with, you know, Kettlebell Kings, we actually started another company about four or five years in at that mark we were referring to called Living Fit, in which we were doing additional fitness equipment. I've since sold my shares in Living Fit as well. But the one area that I didn't get to touch on was natural lifestyle products. So ingestible supplements, literally your glassware, your bedding, just any kind of product that you use in your in your daily lifestyle, I think there's natural solutions that are better options than, you know, commercialized, uh, processed or pharmaceutical solutions that people use right now. So the idea behind Life Grows Green is to build a community that appreciates those natural lifestyle products. What's your take on intermittent fasting? I think it definitely works. I think there's some benefit to it. I mean, I think people consider what I do intermittent fasting. Um, and, you know, I've been doing kind of my own routines for a very long time at this point. After college, I struggled quite a bit because I consumed so many calories in college. It was, it was ridiculous. I ate three buffet meals a day plus snacks. 
and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't sustain that. And I didn't feel good sustaining that after college. So once I got down to eating, you know, it started with just kind of skipping breakfast and eating twice a day. And then I realized like, Hey, you know, I'm not really feeling that great eating lunch and dinner or having a big lunch and a big dinner. I kind of started eating maybe around four o'clock, five o'clock, and that would just be the big meal. And then if I had a snack before or after that, that's fine. You know, I may have a like a late night fruit bowl or, or or something like that to to kind of hold me over to the next day. But that seemed to work better for me. And I've been doing that now for about mm, probably about 10 years. Do you drink coffee or have caffeine as part of your routine? Not coffee, um, just j- just tea. So I'm a big green tea drinker. I probably drink two or three cups of green tea a day. But yeah, that that's about it. And more just because I like the, the kind of the herbaceous flavor of tea, I guess. Uh, but it's not even I don't think it really does anything for caffeine wise. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about big fitness brands that you follow or like or dislike for that matter. What's your opinion on Peloton? I think, I mean, as far as a fitness brand, I I mean, I I love the energy. I love the, you know, the amount of money that they put into home fitness. I think that's the future of fitness. I think they are where I think fitness should be going. I I think that they're really trying to go after that. Are they nailing the execution? You know, I think that they could improve for sure. You know, so if they're looking for help, I'm actually consulting right now. So uh, maybe a shout shout out to Peloton there. But shout out to Peloton. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I could I, use your help actually. Yeah. No, I, I, I honestly do think I could help them to be honest. But I mean, I, th- I think they're trying to go after the future of fitness. And I think this is going to be difficult and it's, you're going to, you're going to run into quite a few hurdles trying to, trying to get there. But having kind of your home fitness station that can connect to a fitness studio where people give you the best quality content and you can kind of skip the need to go anywhere, I think is the fastest way to get the most people in shape. You know, I tell people every day, if you don't have a home fitness workout, you probably miss two or three workouts just because you don't feel like driving to the gym. And yeah, to me, that's why I like having a kettlebell at home and having some type of fitness routine at home is super helpful because that 20, 30 minute drive becomes now I'm just going to get that 20 minute, 30 minute drive workout in and I'm going to be done. So I think little tricks and things like that can help you stay disciplined on your routine. The ultimate results are just consistently doing it over time. You know, I tell my girlfriend all the time, like, I don't think people realize how many push-ups I've done in my life. And that's what they don't understand. So they see me and they're like, oh, how are you such in good shape? And it's not because I did like a thousand push-ups yesterday, but I've done hundreds of thousands of push-ups over my life. And, that you know, that's going to, my chest is going to look better than someone who's only done 20. You know, it's, like, it's just, just kind of f- physics. Chad, who's your pick to win the Super Bowl this year? Don't have one, to be honest. Yeah, I don't have one. I'm I'm glad to that. I feel like football's finally getting good again. Uh, you know, I felt like it was it was bad for a couple of years there. So I mean, I'm ne- I'm never the type of person to have like a, a bandwagon team uh, or anything like that. I'm, I'm always the type of person just like to see a good game. So I'm excited about the playoffs and uh, even the basketball playoffs this year. I'm, I'm excited about the NBA and NFL right now. Preparing for Battle, that's the book. Encourage everybody to go and grab that on Amazon. Life Goes Green, the new company, the new venture. Chad, where else can people follow what you're up to online? The best place is chadprice.com, but you can also follow me on my socials. I'm at Real Chad Price or Chad Price on LinkedIn and things like that. YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, things like that. So I have basically a a system in place on my website and through my social media. So whether you're looking for Life Grows Green or you're looking for a speaker, or workshops, these different things, you can find it all through these channels. 
Chad, thanks so much for the time, man. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was very nice meeting you. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Entrepreneurs Exposed is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at scriberbase.com. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. It helps our audience find us. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash E2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together, we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Electric acid.